You're listening to MedEx, the Medical Extrusion Podcast, presented by U.S. Extruders. Extrude with confidence. Custom extrusion equipment designed for you and your application. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the MedEx Podcast and the start of Season 2. We're going to kick things off with a discussion about robotic-assisted catheters and endoscopes, and our guest is Joe Boguski. Staff Mechanical Engineer at Intuitive Surgical. Intuitive Surgical is the pioneer in robotic-assisted surgery. I hope you enjoy. Joe, thanks for carving out some time to meet with us today on the MedEx Podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great. Joe, I'd like to set the stage for our conversation and start with a discussion about ION, which Mm. is Intuitive's robotically-assisted bronchoscope platform for biopsies in hard-to-reach peripheral areas of the lung. Yeah. And this is a fascinating technology to me. And in reviewing the data, I see that more than two-thirds of the nodules for lung biopsies are far out into the lung. And because of the larger diameter and stiffness of traditional bronchoscopes, they provide limited ability to reach and access segments of the lung for biopsy. Yep. So, Joe, please explain shape-sensing robotic-assisted bronchoscopy and how the ultra-thin and flexible robotic catheter allows clinicians to reach lung tissue far out into the periphery of the lung. Yeah, be happy to. So it's a very exciting technology. I'm very happy, very proud to work on it. The way ION capitalizes on its size is it shares its working channel with the camera. So a lot of devices, they need to be of a certain size simply because most uh, bronchoscopy instruments are two millimeters in diameter. So you need a working channel that can support that. And the camera itself is somewhere around a a millimeter square. So when you put those two together, you become pretty large. So what Intuitive Surgical has done is they've decided to use the working channel as a placeholder for the camera so that the physician can navigate to where he, she wants to go. And then once they get to the target, they can drop a marker, remove the camera and rely on the shape sensing data so that when they introduce their instruments, they're pointing at the exact same point that they were in space, even though they don't have direct vision. Hmm. So the shape sensing fiber, it's a really fascinating technology as implied, it uses light and what's called fiber brag gratings on a fiber to determine strain. And then we, the interrogator there interprets that into a three-dimensional space. And so the system determines a three-dimensional space with respect to the patient, and it doesn't require an EM field, like a lot of medical devices that communicate its shape in space, utilize an EM field and a little EM sensor. And between the two of those, communicate space. But with the shape-sensing fiber, you don't need that ancillary equipment. And all that calculations and all the computations take place behind the scenes so that the physician, they just know what, what their geometric shape in space. So when they're introducing instruments, they know they have the exact same spot and, more importantly, the exact same trajectory when they're trying to go after a lesion in the lung. And so this is the, a lot smaller diameter and more flexible catheter as well. That's right. So having a having an outside diameter of about three and a half millimeters, we can get pretty much to the pleura, the end in the lung. That's critically important 
because typically that's where things start. They start small, they start remote. And the faster that we can get to it, the faster we can treat it. Humans have gotten pretty good at taking care of cancer if we catch it early enough. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Interesting. So we're going to be talking a lot about robotically driven steerable catheters. And before we do that, to kind of set the stage, if you can, Joe, describe the difference between a catheter and a steerable catheter and what makes a catheter steer. Oh, yeah. It's exciting. I've been designing catheters for quite a little while. And initially, uh, a majority of the products I had worked on were simple, conventional, braid-reinforced composite structures. So basically, think of a drinking straw that has a reinforcement, of a braid reinforcement on it that allows it to be flexible and not kink mm -hmm. during use. Typically, a catheter will incorporate a, a PTFE layer. It'll have a braid or a coil reinforcement to, to give it the, the bendability and the anti-kink properties that are required. And then it'll have a polymeric jacket. And typically, the polymer jackets range from a, a, a softer, lower durometer material to a stiffer, higher durometer material on the back end because you need to be atraumatic. You, you need to be gentle to the tissue. So you need to be nice and floppy so that the catheters follow the natural anatomy. However, you can't really push on a wet noodle. So the back end needs to be a little bit stiffer and you need to change your stiffness gradually from the distal end, the, the part that's furthest into the patient to the more proximal end, the, the one that's closest to the position. Steerable catheters, they incorporate most of that same technology where they'll have a lubricious durable liner like a PTFE liner, they'll have a braid reinforcement, they'll have a polymer jacket, but within the wall of the catheter, there'll be uh, pull tendons wherein they can pull tension on one wire or another wire to get the device to steer to the left or to the right or to the up or to the down. Traditionally, most steer manually steerable catheters, they'll utilize one or two pull wires so that the catheter can go left and then right. Or mm -hmm. more accurately, it can go one way and then correct itself. And the way you can get away with that or the way that's utilized in a clinical standpoint is the physician may steer in one direction and then they'll twist the back end of it. And so they'll utilize the torsional stiffness of a catheter to direct it into the directions that they want to go. So the steerable catheters, they have the handle where typically those pull wires are attached to a knob and then a physician can twist the knob one way to go one way. Uh, in the other direction to, to, to return. Rarely they have levers or sometimes they have sliders, but the, whatever that mechanism is to affect uh, tension on those pull wires needs to be put into the handle. And of course you still need the, the, the access for your guide wires mm -hmm. or, your, or your fluid injection ports or whatever access, whatever therapy you plan on doing in, in the area once you get there. Okay, great. That kind of sets the stage for some of the you know, topics we're going to be discussing going forward. And I wanted to ask, you know, besides general minimally invasive surgery, are you seeing develop developments in robotically controlled catheters for cardiology, for instance, uh, electrophysiology to treat AFib? Yeah. In my work history, I had worked for a robotically steerable company that was working to treat AFib. It was Hanson Medical. They utilize a robotically steerable catheter that attached to the bed above the patient. It introduced a robotically steerable, what they called a leader and a sheath. So it was actually a, a two telescoping devices where 
you could affect a, a compound turn. So you could have one, the exterior device, go into the anatomy and make these large articulations. Mm -hmm. And then from that point, the catheter from inside of it could could come out. I always used to joke, it's kind of like in the movie Alien, where the you know the alien's coming at you with big big teeth, and then all of a sudden yeah. you got the little teeth that come yeah. out of the mouth. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of like that. Um, but they had a device that would be used in AFib, and, and in particular for AFib, it's, uh, robotic procedures do have quite a bit of value because the complexity of a moving, beating heart and where you want to do your ablations is very critical. Mm -hmm. And so you want that robotic precision. In addition to that, you want to make sure your physicians don't get fatigued by wearing, you know, 40 pounds of lead to protect themselves and standing hunched over a, a patient for some six, sometimes eight hours to do mm -hmm. an ablation. So robotically steerable allows the physician to get out of the radiation fields. It allows them to sit down and, and to, con you know, control the device at hand. And you have the robotic precision of the instrument to help guide the, the physician about where to do the actual ablations. Wow. And Hanson was one of them. I know there's other companies out there in the EP mm. field. I know there's other companies just using robotics to get to other parts of the body, you know, just below the knee stenting, cardiovascular interventions, valve placements, mitral mm. clip uh, installations, all of these things. The technology is going more and more robotic. And as I said, it's because Patients are demanding greater precision. They want it done right the first time. Mm -hmm. Physicians are demanding easier procedures so that there's less cognitive load, there's less physical load, there's less, you know, requirement on their or their, their dexterity. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> very, very exciting industry that's wow. uh, upon us for sure. Absolutely. So interesting. I guess the same question related to neurovascular uh, to navigate the torturous cerebral arteries for treating mm. aneurysms. Mm. Same. Yeah. So neurovascular catheters, particularly steerable neurovascular catheters, there's a couple of technologies that are utilized that are independent or different than what I had previously explained. So what I call conventional steerable catheters have a pull tendon, whether it be a wire, a cable, a fiber, a rope, whatever, but there's a string that goes from the distal end to the back end that, that you can pull on to get it to bend in one way. Mm -hmm. However, usually it's a cable, it's a wire, and whatever it is, it has physical dimensions. So it's going to make your devices bigger. They're also add a little bit of stiffness. So when you're in the neurovasculature, you want something that's super floppy. So you don't want steerable wires in there and you want it to be as small as possible. So again, you don't want steerable wires. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the neurovascular interventions, they rely on large exterior magnets and they utilize the stereotaxis technology that, you know, it pulls, there's a small magnet embedded in the distal end of the catheter that controls the tip. And this large exterior magnet controls the magnetic fields and pulls and pushes the magnet in the distal end of the catheter in one direction or another as a physician can drive it under fluoroscopy, you know, mm -hmm. so, so he, she can see what they're doing to push it into pathways that they want to go. Interesting. So I'm glad we had that, you know, we set the stage earlier about the steerable catheters and what makes a catheter steer. And you gave great examples for like a cardiology and the neurovascular totally different because of space constraints, like you talked about right. when it, when it comes to two-way, four-way steerable catheters, what are some of the differences between a robotically driven steerable catheter compared to a conventional 
pull wire or magnetically steerable catheter? A manual steerable catheter, typically, as I said before, they'll typically have two directions. So they'll go left and right. There are some that do have four-way steering, but the main difference between a conventional steerable catheter and a robotically driven steerable catheter is typically you're not going to twist the robot. You're not going to twist the back end of the robot. So you do need full up, down, left, right capability. In addition to that, even with just a, a left, right steerability, the torsional requirement to get the distal end of the device in the direction that you want to go could be a little tortuous. It could be a little traumatic to adjacent tissue. And so instead of commanding a bend and twisting it in one direction, we really just want to bend in the direction that we want to go. So when you have four wires, you can go up, down, left, right. And with robotics, you can use a combination of tensions of the two in between two wires and go somewhere in between the directions. So you can go at a 45 degree or a 35 degree or 22 degree if you want. Whatever micro movement that you want to make, you can do that typically with robotics because the robotics can control both the pitch and the yaw if, if we were to use the degrees of freedom mm -hmm. terminology of robotics. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to talk about single-use steerable robotic endoscopes. Mm -hmm. Recently, there's been a, a transition from reusable endoscopes to lower cost single use or endoscopes. The re reusable endoscopes are complicated and they require reprocessing, which increases the risk for contamination. So talk to us a little bit about the handle design. We talked about some of the complexities of the handle design for an endoscope or a steerable catheter terminating the pull wires, for instance, you got fiber optics, you know, illumination and everything. How do you go, how do you transition from a reusable endoscope with a complicated handle design like that to a disposable endo endoscope? And how do you mechanically and, and electrically couple that endoscope to a, a robotic arm? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, it's very fascinating, very interesting precipice that we're on uh, with regard to the whole disposable and reusable. So mm -hmm. with a reusable device, you can incorporate, you're not as confined by cost of goods, right? So you can put more expensive, more capability, more better technology into a reusable device. Uh, you can put the shape sensing fiber into it. You can put ultrasonic sensors in it. You can have all these extra things that help for whatever clinical procedures that you're undergoing. But then you may have to make sure that you use materials that are going to be resilient to the chemicals that are used in those reprocessings. So a vaporized hydrogen peroxide is very good at killing things. A lot of the polymers that are used in, in traditional catheters, they're organic in nature. So they are affected by these cleaning agents. Enzymatic cleaners are also you know, very detrimental to the devices. So you want to make sure you have materials that are resilient to these harsh chemicals. Mm -hmm. But the back end also needs to be sealed off. So typically we'll have your computer boards and your chips and, and whatever else ancillary technology that needs to be on board the catheter before it actually connects to the robot. So all of that needs to be sealed so that none of the cleaning agents can get into there and withstand pressure. So there is ISO standards, there's FE, FDA standards so that when you have a steerable reusable device, the handle needs to withstand a certain amount of pressure while completely submerged underwater without any observable leaks. And they do that to determine whether or not, if there's an observable leak, 
then that means it's possible for bile burden or fluids to get into the device and you can't clean those out once they're in there. Mm -hmm. So that's one test that the regulatory bodies require so that it, we have clean, sterile products for the next patient. Um, for a disposable device, you absolutely can, you have a little bit more, you have a little bit more leniency as far as the different materials that you can have because typically sterilization, ethylene oxide sterilization is pretty friendly to a lot of polymers. And the other thing that is a uh, consideration is that for a disposable device, you have to be really clever with how you're going to incorporate some of that technology. So mm -hmm. maybe you take some of the, some of the, the ancillary chips and the boards and uh, uh, the, the PCB boards, take them out of the device and put them into the robot, then you have to figure out how are you going to connect to them. Mm -hmm. So you have these huge cost demands, but you don't have as many sealed handle requirements because it's a disposable device. It just gets thrown away and only sees one patient. From a business standpoint, just dipping outside of your question a little bit, it, yeah. it, the reason I find it so interesting is because Patients absolutely want to make sure that whatever's going into their body is super clean, right? So yeah. they want it sterile. And you can do that with a disposable device because you can sterilize it. But patients and, you know, people in general are not completely oblivious to the fact that, oh, that's disposable. That's waste. That's mm -hmm. contributing to a much larger problem that we have yeah. um, in many regards. Um, there's definitely uh, appeal. For having a disposable device, yes, you can ensure it's sterile. You don't have to worry about insufficient cleaning. Yeah, They have to be very clever in, in making it economical because it's very difficult to get the same kind of technology that, for example, if I were to take my current bronchoscope that I've been working on for Intuitive, the ION, and I were to try and transform that into a disposable device, mm -hmm. you got to be really clever to give it the same capabilities, so the steerable, the shape sensing capabilities, the the, the camera, the, the, the illumination, Getting all that stuff in a in a price point that meets the disposable requirements is is uh, is challenging for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That is probably the biggest challenge besides the technical challenge, right? The, yeah, the, the price point. Yeah. Real quick, you talked a little bit about sterilization, and are are some of these devices are, are autoclavable? A lot of the instruments that Intuitive makes for the Da Vinci, the rigid robot, the laparoscopy robot, mm. they are in fact are autoclavable. They're rigid, right? So they don't rely as much on the polymers that the, uh, a catheter or an endoscope might rely on. In order to get that flexibility and atraumaticity, uh, close enough, yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you, you need basically your main superstructure to be a polymeric base. Um, but for the Da Vinci, yeah, they, 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 a lot of those are autoclavable. But uh, for when you have robotically steerable catheters, a lot mm. of those polymers can't handle the temperatures required for autoclave. Okay, interesting. Excellent. Hey, Joe, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thanks yeah. so much for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm glad I could share a little bit about things that I've been experienced too. Hopefully some of your listeners could get some benefit out of my stories. I'm sure they will. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to MedEx, the medical extrusion podcast presented by U.S. Extruders. Please subscribe to make sure you're getting the latest episodes. For video episodes, go to us-extruders.com forward slash podcasts. All links are available in the show notes.